Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or walmart.com. You are listening to the VBank Link podcast, and boy, are we so excited for you today. You asked, we answered, we got lots of rave reviews the last time we had these guests on today, and so we're bringing them back. Dr. Stuart Fishbein and midwife Bliss Young are here today to talk with us about a topic that you don't really hear talked a lot about in the birth world, and that is body autonomy during pregnancy and birth. All right, so we are going to get right to these guys. We know you love them. We know you're going to love this episode right after our quick intro. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. All right, guys, welcome back. We are just sitting here on Zoom, staring at the beautiful mustache of Dr. Stuart Fishbein and midwife Bliss Young's beautiful cat named Buddha. <laughs> and I am outnumbered three to one. This is Julie, and I am a, I do not like cats. I don't know how. I love kitties. They're, they are just jerks. Cats are just jerks. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do tricks. They don't snuggle with you. They don't come when you call them. Really? They, you just you can't take them on walks. Then. Oh, I had cats yeah, growing up. You know what they are? What? You know what they are? What are they? They're the poster child for bodily autonomy. Because, they, <laughs> because they're not going to let you touch them because they're jerks. They don't let you touch them. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Well, let's just have this podcast. Let's scratch your eyeballs. Let's let's make a meme. I think we need a meme about this because body autonomy and cat and scratching the eyeballs out on the obstetric table. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to work on something like that for us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's coming. (laughs) All right, you guys. By now, you know how much we love Doctor Stu and Midwife Bliss. Um, If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to their their podcast um you can listen to dr sue's podcast wherever you listen to podcasts the same app you're listening to us right now i imagine but before you head over to them and fall too much in love with them um listen to them here on our la- last episode with Dr. Stu and Bliss, we talked very we very briefly mentioned body autonomy and Dr. Stu said he could do a whole podcast episode on that and so we are ta- <laughs> taking him up on the challenge and Megan and I know have had some pretty hard, hard experiences as doulas in the birth room as well with patients not being given a choice or not being offered choices or in some instances um, being downright abused. And so we want to talk about that, what body autonomy means and what your rights are in the birth space. So I'm just going to turn it over to either Stu or Bliss to kind of get us started and, and with some initial thoughts. Well, I would like to just say that, that the, the subject of bodily autonomy you know, I mean, sort of some people gravitate right to obstetric violence or doing things without permission, but it, it's a much bigger topic than that. And actually, I don't remember when we were talking last time under what context I brought it up. But I think, you know, it could have been the vaccine issue. It could have been a bunch of other issues. It, it, it could have been informed consent. 
But I think it's it's a it's a topic where in this country and, and probably other countries as well, we have a, a sort of a schizophrenic view of bodily autonomy. And obviously, we're going to cross some subjects which might make some people uncomfortable this hour. Yeah. But I would just like to say that you look at when it comes to things like choice for abortion, we respect a woman's right. At least the four of us do. We expect a woman's right to choose. Well, I would prefer that they choose earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, you know, there are some states where a woman has the right to choose to terminate the pregnancy at any time that she wants. And we respect that bodily autonomy. But if a woman is pregnant and she chooses not to follow the advice of a physician, or she chooses not to get a vaccine, or she chooses not to uh, deliver in a hospital setting, or, or some other choice that she makes, she can be turned over to Child Protective Services. She can be mm-hmm. harangued, harassed. There are even some ethicists in my profession who are trying to convince other obstetricians that it is proper to use respectful coercion to get women to do what they want them to do and not be doing home birthing or not be doing breech birthing or things like that. So it, it is sort of schizophrenic because we let women you know, choose the, what to do with their bodies. But if they're pregnant, then suddenly their bodies belong to somebody else. And this is where I think that the big issue for me, you know, starts and then gets, you know, gets into the abuse and the stories of abuse and the fact that we have the whole vaccine issue mm-hmm. where, you know, ACOG recommends that pregnant women get uh, Tdap and flu shots in the third trimester and that a place like here in Southern California, Kaiser sort of almost gives information that only says that you should do this because it protects your baby against getting pertussis in the first couple months of life, but never tell them what the uh, the risks of getting pertussis are in the first couple months of life, mm-hmm. doesn't give them true informed consent, and doesn't inform the woman that, by the way, this vaccine we're injecting into you has never been tested in pregnant women. Yep. And we're going to give it to you anyway because ACOG thinks it's a good idea, but ACOG thinks it's a good idea only based on what's called level C of evidence, which is basically consensus opinion. And their consensus opinion is not based on anything really scientific. And ultimately, as we'll come down to every discussion we think we have today, is that no matter what the practitioner thinks, the hospital thinks, the insurer thinks, the legal system thinks, ultimately the decision of what to do belongs to the individual pregnant woman and not anyone else. And no two people given the same information should be expected to come with, up with the same response every time. Exactly. I mean, that's what choice is all about. Something that's one in a thousand to you might seem risky and one in a thousand to somebody else might seem crazy to even think that it's risky. Mm-hmm. And we should respect, uh, if we give them true information, we should respect their decisions. And that's the thing when it comes to the bigger picture of bodily autonomy that I'm talking about is we don't respect the individual to make the choices or we think that, you know, it's very patriarchal and it doesn't just mean male physicians, but it's a very patriarchal system that, you know, if you don't listen to what we're saying, you're putting your baby in danger and pulling out the old dead baby card and that sort of thing. And then again, in my position and Bliss's position, I think also we hear a skewed view because we, we're a repository for lots of different people coming in from stories outside, either through the Internet or through social media or whatever, where they're writing us and asking us what we think. So that's where I'm coming from. You know, and Jesse, not not only from like providers and and like medical professionals and stuff, but I feel like a lot of this pressure and judgmental stuff, like you said, it is coming from social media. Like I see on these forums where people are just attacking people for choosing the things that they choose, and like I personally struggle so much with that because listen, if I want to vaccinate or don't want to vaccinate, like that's my child. What does you know like? I don't know. It's really hard. And I think it's just hard for women to feel like they don't have a choice or they can't talk about their choices or they can't Mm -hmm. ask for options and they can't learn about these things because, like you said, it's like, this is what you have to do. So they have to go out and try to find all of the other options of, well, what's, has this been tested on pregnant women? What are the consequences of this for me and my baby? Do you feel like it's hard to find those things because it's so like pro, pro, pro in so many areas for like to find the option to make the right choice for them. Does that make sense? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Or well, anybody? any of you. Yeah. It's very hard because, <laughs> because the majority of information that people are given out there is very skewed to one side. Right. You know, when I, when I attend ACOG meetings, which isn't very often, 
but you know, I went to their annual convention a few years ago and I, I sat and watched as people snickered when they, when home be back or, 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 or home delivery was mentioned and, you know, the audience would snicker and, and I saw, uh, uh, on, online, uh, a debate between, it wasn't really a debate. It was two people agreeing with each other. You know, the idea of inducing everyone in 39 weeks. The arrive study. Nowhere in that conversation was it ever mentioned that the patient, whether at ACOG meeting or on that debate on on video, that the patient's actually a real person with a brain who Mm -hmm. might not want to do what you're suggesting. And I watched as doctors before that debate, they, they have a little device you can use in the audience. And they said, how many people think it's a good idea to induce people at 39 weeks? And it was like 20% of the audience. And then after these two guys finished their so-called debate, it was up to 70%. Wow. So just like one hour, elect, one hour of propaganda wow. and 50% of doctors changed their, or 50, yeah, I guess 50% of doctors changed their mind. It's just that simple. And a, and a lot of my profession, a lot of my profession are sheep and not shepherd. And I understand that. And that's a, that'll be our third, that'll be our next podcast is, is why are so many doctors so unwilling to uh, challenge the status quo. You better write yeah. that down. And the standard of care is often, you know, wrong. And I would be more than happy to debate that with anybody who thinks it isn't so. But the problem is, is that the, the, those people will never debate people who have uh, an outside opinion or a different opinion. Mm-hmm. And I used to be in the status quo. I used to think that, you know, you should, uh, look, I, when I was a resident at County Hospital, you know, there was no such thing as patient autonomy, all right? This was in 1984 and 85. It was the busiest hospital in the country at that time. They were doing 22,000 births a year there. Mm. Which if you break it down, it was 65 births a day at the hospital. And, and 95% of the people didn't speak English. A lot of them were from across the border. So we, we didn't do anything like informed consent. These people came in there. They were more sheep than person. And I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative, but just that's the way it was in those days. And, um, you know, if, if, if we had a woman who came in with no prenatal care, with ruptured membranes and had no dates, the, our, our thing was we scan the woman. If the estimated fetal weight is over 2,000 grams, we give them Pitocin and pit the baby out. And that was it. There was no other choice. And, wow. and, and so we've come a long way from those days. But I still think that there's a, there's a, for lack of a better word, paternalistic view is that the majority of physicians, for many, many reasons, do not give people options because I think that they are uncomfortable with these things. And so instead of saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with this, why don't you get a second opinion? They skew them with information to get them to follow the path that makes the doctor feel feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. I just think that that's the way it, it works. And I think that that's, you know, and again, maybe I'm seeing a skewed population. I don't want to paint all my colleagues with a broad brush, but I just see it way too often. Well, and we have this really bad habit in our society of going to our doctors and listening to what they say and doing exactly what they say. We don't ever challenge it. We don't ever question it. We don't ever think, hey, maybe there's another answer. We don't ever think that we have a choice or we have other options. And so we see this a lot of times as doulas and and, we, you know, we have friends that, you know, we're in our childbearing years now, Megan and I, and we have lots of childbearing friends right now. And most of them birth by going, they just go to the hospital, they do what their doctor says, and they have their baby. And they have no idea that there's another way, that they have choice, they can decline certain things, that they can ask for certain things. And I think that that's a really bad habit that we have as birthing women and even as society as a whole is we we don't ever question things or if something doesn't feel right to us in our hearts or in our guts we still do it because the doctor knows best and i think it's going to take like an entire kind of mind shift in our in our generation or in the maybe the next generation or maybe generation has nothing to do with it but we need to start questioning we need to start questioning what we're being told or asking for evidence or asking for second opinions. But people are, I think, just kind of so so trusting of that medical degree that they don't trust themselves or they don't even feel a need to trust themselves or ask themselves any other questions. When you guys decided to um, to do a topic on body autonomy, what what is it that you really want your listeners to, to gain? hear from us? 
what's something that's really important to you? What are you hoping that we would get across to them? That's a good question. She's like, we're going to do it on body autonomy. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, go ahead. I think, and I do think, you have a definition for this, for body autonomy? Well, that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to kind of ask you guys, too, in our discussion is, like, what what is the definition? Like, what do you? how do you define it? Because me is, like, having a choice in what happens to our own bodies, right? To ourselves. Ha- having a choice, right? And I think that women just don't know that they have choices in childbirth, and I think we see it a lot. We have a Facebook community. We have, you know, Instagram pages. We get direct messages on our Instagram and our Facebook. We get emails and they say, my doctor says this. My doctor won't let me go past 42 weeks. We get the like, won't let me. My doctor won't induce unless my cervix is ripe and only with a fully bulb and only if I'm before 40 weeks. And we want to give women back the power to say no. I'm not going to do that. I just had a client. We're actually interviewing her right after this episode to share her story. But she was at a hospital and and they said, you know, your your other babies were kind of big. So we want to do a girl scan at 36 weeks. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. And luckily they respected her and they said, okay, we're not going to do that. But that situations like that are so rare that that women feel like they almost have to fight for their body autonomy. And I think maybe a good thing to get out of this episode would be ways that women can speak up for themselves, how to do it in an effective way, and maybe just give them some ideas because your doctor can't let you do anything. But also going into the hospital pushing is not a good birth plan either if you're going into a hospital that's not VBAC friendly or that has a VBAC ban. And so... It's really tricky if you're in an area like the deep south, like, oh, my gosh, North Carolina or Louisiana or even parts of Florida where home birth is illegal and options for VBAC are incredibly limited. And it's almost impossible to find a supportive provider like here in Utah. We're really lucky because we have lots of great in and out of hospital providers that will accommodate all kinds of situations. But it's not like that in other parts of the country. So it's easy for Megan and I to say, oh, well, here's a list of providers that will help you but they don't have that right. anywhere else. Okay. And so how can we help our listeners demand to be heard and listened to and be given that option to have the choices over their body when they're not living in in a culture, a local culture that is conducive with that type of, of belief? So I think that one of the things that you guys were, were mentioning was, you know, our generation mm-hmm. and Instagram culture and all of this. And I have to tell you that, um, you know, I've been in and around birth for over 25 years, almost 30, actually. My, my eldest son is 27. So I've seen shifts in the culture from being a mom this long and for being a woman who's been really interested in advocating for women's rights around birth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do think things are changing. I do think because of the Me Too movement, I think there's a lot more conversations around how women, I was just listening to a podcast today that was on a completely different topic. It was a, it's called um, Men This Way. And it's, it's a man's podcast that I like to listen to because I, I think it gives me insight on men. But it was talking We could all about, use some of that, um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was talking about, which I think a lot of, um, masculine feminine conversations are happening right right now around men's understanding men's roles and how a woman may or not may not communicate yes or no but that body language becomes a really mm-hmm. important thing for men to become sensitive to and um, I think we are redefining a lot of roles and I think women are understanding that they are going to have to speak up and that things are changing in a lot of different places and so I think it is eventually going to bleed over into obstetrics hopefully that's what that's what i'm i'm feeling but i think that the point that you bring up that's really interesting is that you know dr fishbein and i also work and live in california and even though we're very frustrated with a lot of the things that we see and hear from our our potential clients or from our clients or our friends 
it's probably a lot better than a lot of the other mm-hmm. areas in the country, as you pointed to in the Deep South. So I, as a midwife, primarily do home birth, although sometimes I do still do hospital support. And I recently changed my packages because I felt like trying to help a woman advocate for herself and really be empowered in two prenatal visits as a as a doula before we go into the hospital wasn't enough. You know, we need more time. And so I think it's really great that you guys are bringing up this topic on your podcast and starting to have these conversations because it is going to be something that's more than just, okay, put this on your birth plan and then go into the hospital and you'll be able to advocate mm-hmm. for yourself. I think some people are are very outspoken and I think they will be able to say no absolutely not I'm do whatever you want to do fire me as your client in the middle of my labor which I've heard happen before and other people just don't feel confident about that so I think it's it's going to have to happen over a long period of time and I think we have to continually keep reminding women you are hiring your doctor they're a consultant they work for you. You may not know everything that they know, but choosing a provider that's aligned with your values is going to give you a lot better ability to be able to speak up for yourself when it's challenging and you're in labor. This is why this is why Bliss is the best co-host in the business because we love her. What she said. I wrote down two notes over here, and I'm going to get to them. And Bliss just sort of gave me a great segue into both of them by what she just said. So let me recap. She talked about that two visits isn't enough time for a doula or whatever else to give the information that's needed. And what I wrote here is that the doctors in the system don't have the time. That was my note to myself. Okay. So what I'm, what I'm implying by that is that uh, one of the big problems that we have in trying to change the system and advocate for bodily autonomy is the, is the very system itself because the system itself doesn't allow for physicians or nurse practitioners or nurse midwives or nurses even to have the time to actually sit down and give what's called true informed consent mm-hmm. and to be able to listen to the patient's life story and history and ask them questions about sexual trauma and sexual abuse and ask them, you know, is it okay if I do this? Um, do I have your permission to do this? Here are the options that if we do that. Here's are the pros and cons of this option. Here's the pros and cons of this option. Here's the pros and cons of a third option. Here's the pros and cons of a fourth option that I don't have to offer to you, but there is somebody else in another building down the block or in another town that does offer that. The way the system is set up with reimbursement and volume in order Mm -hmm. to make a living as a physician now doesn't allow for that conversation to take place. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be up to the individual woman to say, whoa, 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 slow down. And some people, you know, if they have have HMO insurance or they have Medicaid or whatever – you know, they don't really have much choice in who they can go to. And so they're stuck with what they get. So that's a real dilemma. But ultimately, it's the woman that has to say, no, 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 I'm not satisfied with this. And, you know, they may get kicked out of a practice or two, but they have to fight for what they need. And the second thing I wrote down was don't wait until labor to deal with your questions and your desires. Yep. So don't just show up with a birth plan and say, here's my birth plan. You need to have these all things written, uh, even if you have to get the doctor to to sign off on your, on, on your desires, you know, at 26 weeks, these things should be discussed early on before you even choose a practitioner. And you, and you should go into that first meeting with the, with the OB that you're getting. And of course, the system also doesn't necessarily give you the same OB every time. So that's also a problem. Right. If you're in a clinic or in a system where, you know, you might go to see the same OB, but you only have a one in 10 chance of having that person be the mm-hmm. physician on call on the night that you're in labor. But Ultimately, that's the thing. That's the way the system is right now. And until we have a system that changes, people need to look, either try to fight through that system and get what they want, or they go outside the system into the midwifery world where they're much more likely to have their bodily autonomy respected. Not to exclude myself. I mean, I was guilty of this sort of thing when when I was a resident and early in my practice, you know, our, our job was to just get people delivered. Uh, and we used the Friedman curve mm-hmm. and we did badge exams every one to two hours. And if we didn't do a badge exam every one to two hours and mark it down on the, on the chart or on the big white board where you sign in and sign out in, on your team, the next team would come on and they'd yell at you for not having an updated vaginal mm-hmm. exam. So, yeah, I mean, you can ask permission for all that, and, but, but 
nobody knew to say no. The, the women, the women don't know, especially when they're you know being taken care of by residents. But it's even it, it, it extends into private practice, and it, 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 I don't think that doctors are are necessarily. No, I, I know that doctors, other than a rare few, are not necessarily masochistic or mean or mean spirited or anything like that. They're just they're just victims of the system themselves. And they don't go home at night saying, you know, um, honey, I, I abused three women today and I did four unnecessary C-sections. Let's have right. some dinner. They don't do that. <laughs> they have to believe that they're doing the right thing. And so changing, changing the system where people are, have a cognitive dissonance about, about the fact that there's anything wrong with the system at all is, is going to be very difficult. And it's going to need to come from the women. And I think the Me Too movement and, and the feminist movement, uh, the parts of it that are good, are, are, are going to help. And I think the next generation, as, as I think Bliss said with social media and stuff like that, and the groups, they are going to hear more and more, but you're never going to, I don't know that you're ever going to reach critical mass in order to cause the system to collapse and change the whole thing, mm-hmm. which would be ideal because we should take normal birth out of the hospital and we should take normal birth into a situation where women can have the choice. And we're, I mean, we're not just talking about birth when we're talking about bodily autonomy, but we're sort of stuck on that hamster wheel right now so that's where we'll we'll (laughs) we'll stay well i you know i i agree with you in so many ways and i believe that we as women have to keep talking to each other and reminding each other Mm -hmm. that we do have rights when it comes to our body and um, i don't i also don't think that doctors are masochistic and and um, and intend harm, but I think that even if we just look at the term obstetric violence, that's a term from the last several years that I'm sure, Stu, when you were in practice in the hospital, no one was really using that conversation of obstetric violence, correct? No, it was it, it was it was not a term that was ever heard or used, and and even women who complained about about stuff were were summarily ignored, pretty much. Right. So as we as we have these conversations out loud, and this is where you know there are ways that social media can cannot be positive in terms of us like comparing each other, comparing ourselves to other people's experience, and you know having to look perfect and all of these things. There are things that social media is not great, but something that it is really wonderful is that it can take a social cause. And, and make it like wildfire. Mm-hmm. So this term obstetric violence is something that we're talking about now. And so that ends up affecting the way that, you know, doctors who are exposed to this term are, are going to start to be a little bit more cautious. So another example is letting women know that whoever comes into the room and touches them should ask permission and they should have people whether they can hire a doula or not hire a doula, a mom, a sister, a husband who advocates for them and says, you know, it's really important to us if you come into the room and you're going to do an exam or if you're going to touch her body that you have a conversation with her first. Like, where else in the world would it be okay for someone to stick their fingers in your vagina without asking permission? Hmm. And so... Let so- alone even something, mess- you know, just even even touching your wrist or, or putting a blood pressure cuff on. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But right. really when it comes to vaginal exams, there's so much, there's so much connected with that. When I was in midwifery school, I learned from Elizabeth Davis, who, you know, has written many, many books and wrote Heart and Hand, one of the main midwives that teaches in the United States. And when she taught us about vaginal exams before we ever did them, because you do them on each other in midwifery school, she said, you have to realize that when you touch a woman's body, you're touching every single experience that she's ever had, every trauma, everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the more that we have these dialogues out loud together as women and we say, hey, wait a minute, I need you to ask permission. I need to be involved in this conversation. I need a moment. I need you to like, and you know, Dr. Fishbein, I've, I I work with him. So I know that he does this because he's also learned from midwives. May I touch you? Here's my hand. You can feel my hand on your thigh. You're going to feel this. If you feel uncomfortable, please let me know. This is not something that's done all over in obstetrics, but should be taught. And I think that we as women, as 
lovers of women have to start advocating for this to be an important part because that's when it starts to feel like rape. And I know that every doula that I've ever spoken to has had a traumatic experience of witnessing something in a birth room that feels like you're watching and participating in rape. Yep. And yeah. that's where this term obstetrical violence comes from. And it's not okay. And women need to understand that just because they have hired a doctor or have gone into a hospital and signed a form and said, I want you to take care of me, that doesn't mean that you have the right to do something that may be triggering or cause trauma in, in, in our experience. Right. You know, and there's so many times where I feel like women, they experience this and then they they are really upset and they're really rocked inside, but they don't feel like that they can talk to anybody about it or go to a higher power at that location or whatever. And so a lot of this stuff is happening and a lot of it's just being like brushed under the rug. And I struggle so much because I'm like, it, I think Dr. Stu just said this a minute ago, like, how you know, we, it's going to be the moms, like, we're going to be changing this, like, we've got to talk about it, we got to, you know, like you're saying, like, we have to make this happen to, in order for it to change. And if no one knows it's happening, how is it going to change? And right. so, like, I don't know how, because I've seen it, as you said, you know, I've been a doula, not for, yep. you know, only for five years in September, but... I've seen it and it's really hard and it's rocked me as a doula to the point where I've had to like professionally talk to somebody because Mm -hmm. I was so upset with what I witnessed. But then that that mom, particular mom, there's a couple of them, but this one particular mom, she didn't say anything to anybody. And the doctor came and pretty much like sugarcoated it and made it sound like he saved everyone's life. And so she thought that I meant it was supposed to like it was okay that it happened. Like she was grateful that it happened. Does that make yeah, Do you well, guys see the, that? That's the one that sticks out in my mind, too, is that she was screaming and crying not to do a vaginal exam while she was getting a vaginal exam. She literally said, do not touch me. Please don't touch me. Please wait till after the c- contraction. This doctor is just digging around inside her vagina. But by the end of it, she was singing her praises for saving her and her baby's life for um, doing a C-section. And it's hard to see that transition as a doula, but it's also hard for parents who who still know that they have been treated poorly after they've been mistreated because they have to complain to the same organization that treated them poorly in the first place. And so it's kind of hard. I see a lot in discussions with parents that I serve, it's kind of hard for them to feel confident that their voice is going to be heard anyways because there's nowhere else to file a complaint with besides the hospital who who knows what the complaint receiver's relationship is with that doctor anyways. And so it's hard it's hard to go through, it's hard to dig up these emotions again in a way to file an effective complaint and it's hard to wait for an answer and then it's hard to to see it like you guys said just brushed under the rug and ignored. And I feel like it's kind of very similar like why why women who are victims of sexual abuse often don't bring it up because they're afraid that they are going to get blamed or or slut shamed or you know all of these reasons why women don't speak up for that i feel it is it's very similar to why they don't bring up being mistreated in the birth space and because it's it's um accepted as normal yeah right? yeah because they so saved think- my life <laughs> well I, yeah. go ahead oh i was just going to say you know how you're talking about like it's just like, I just like thought about like, okay, if we're in a hospital, like I'm in a labor and delivery and we remove all the walls, people would be dropping their jaws with what was happening. And so it just kind of reminded me of like when you said that a minute ago, like it's kind of crazy to think about that, like all this is happening, but it's okay because we're in the hospital. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah well, it's less okay now too, because partly because everybody's got their uh, iPhone video and everybody's recording everything either so mm-hmm. so i think you know in some ways it's scary and in some ways it's actually not necessarily a bad thing is that that's true you know you're you you know when you're walking outside these days you you have no you have no expectation of privacy yeah and you know that's why hospitals sometimes have policies about nobody can videotape the delivery or nobody can videotape the birth or something like that and i, and I would feel just the opposite by the way if i'm a confident practitioner and mm-hmm. a physician I would want them to videotape the birth. One, it's their birth. It's not, uh, not, it's not like taking out their appendix. And two <laughs> is that 
you know, people say that, you know, you could, that they could be used against you in court or something like that. And I would say, no, it would be, you're more likely to be using it to your defense unless you're doing something wrong, which then it should be used against you in court. So, mm-hmm. Well, one of our um, local hospitals here at the birth I was just at says, because I, I take pictures where I can for families, like when I'm not physically helping them or like especially right after the delivery mm-hmm. with just my iPhone. And one of the local hospitals that we love and we refer to often for VBAC support um, and the ha- probably has the most VBAC supportive provider in the state in it. Um, has a new policy where if you take pictures, it can't have any but any of the hospital staff's faces in the pictures. You can't. You can have the back of their head or the top of their head or their hands, but you can't have their face in the pictures. You know what a hospital. And I'm what will about. they do to you if their face is in the picture? I don't know. I don't even know how they. I mean, like they didn't even check my phone, yeah. but like that's just the rule. Well, they have is no the, right to check your phone. So I know uh, it's just. <laughs> It's just, so you know, it's just hospital policy. I just, I have a, I just tell my clients, if anyone tells you it's hospital policy, ask to see the policy. (laughs) Ask to see the policy because hospital policy can vary from nurse to nurse, depending on what shift you're on. And it can vary from doctor to doctor and anesthesiologist to anesthesiologist. And ask to see, kind of going back into body autonomy from the picture, the whole thing, but like, if someone tells you it's hospital policy and it doesn't sit right with you or doesn't leave you with much of a choice, ask to see the hosp- ask to see the policy. Ask to see the written down policy where it states word for word what they just told you. Do you guys see policies like made up? Oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> what po- time. what policies would you say are most common that well, people would just Well, I was just thinking one out? in particular. All right. We, I just had a lady that, that I tr- transferred her in labor and she had a vaginal delivery with one of the local docs here. And the hospital has a policy that says the placenta has to go to pathology. Oh, geez. I've heard that. Instead of, ta- instead of them being able to just Encapsulate take, it it or something. take it home. All right. So what happened was is that the, the physician, who's very patient-friendly, put the placenta in a, in, a, in a hazard bag and gave it to the family in the, in their, in the recovery room. Not the recovery, the, the delivery room where mm-hmm. they delivered. Mm-hmm. All right. She had a vaginal birth. And the mother, the grandmother of the baby, the mother went out foolishly and asked the nurse for some ice. Oh, okay. shoot. <laughs> and so the, oh, you can't take that placenta home. Dang it. That has to go to pathology. And it's going to take three or four days. You'll have to come back and get it. Mm. All right. And my answer to that would have been, uh, excuse me, this that's is... my daughter's placenta. Yeah. That's my organ. It belongs to, it belongs to us. <laughs> yeah. I will just be taking that placenta. If you'd like me to sign something that says I'm taking it, fine, mm-hmm. but I'm taking it. But first of all, I can tell you from my experience that placental pathology on even a bad outcome birth is pretty much useless. Yeah, it doesn't tell you anything. Or any etiology. Yeah. yeah. But in a normal vaginal delivery with no fever and uh, when just came in for, uh, uh, in for Pitocin and an epidural and had a normal vaginal delivery, that placenta is completely useless. All right? So... In my cynical way, there's only one reason they so-called have a so-called, I'm, I'm using my hands and people can't see me at home, but air quotes. I'm, making, air quotes, I'm yeah. making air quotes with my hands, <laughs> all right, is there's only one reason for that. And that's because if you take the placenta home, they can't bill for it. And if they send it down to pathology, they can they bill can. for it. This is why they charge sure. you $20 for one ibuprofen. Let's talk about that. Well, that's, an, that's, another, that's another problem with the system. But I'm just saying that this is an unnecessary thing. That it's a policy that is crazy. Another policy that you'll hear all the time is that you have to deliver in lithotomy position. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. Or we don't let you, you know, if you have uh, ruptured membranes, you can't go for a walk. Oh, yeah. Or you, yeah. Or you can't get you've in seen, a you've tub. Or you have to deliver within 24 hours. Or you have to do, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's more of a, like, I don't know if that a hospital has a policy like that, but a lot of physicians do. Oh, but they'll say but, that. But there are policies, but, but yeah. So people have to understand that this is, this is an extension of bodily autonomy, is that that's my placenta. That's yeah. my baby. I don't want you to take the baby to the nursery. But the doctor needs to look at the baby. The doctor can come here and look at the yep. baby. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the baby's not going to the nursery. No, I'm not saying when a, when a baby needs to go to the nursery, that's one thing. For right. sure. But, you know, routinely... Many hospitals have a policy that the baby at some point after delivery has to go to the nursery, right? There, most, a lot of hospitals are getting rid of that, mm-hmm. but it still exists in many hospitals, as does the idea that the baby needs to come to the warmer 
and mm. needs to be dried off and examined and all that stuff, which we all know that makes no sense. If you want to examine the baby, you can just come and look at it on mother's chest. Mm-hmm. The baby needs help. You can help it on the mother's chest. And if it really needs help, then you can take the baby. Mm-hmm. But this idea that there's a policy that the baby has to go to the nursery. Uh, now, I, I freely admit that I've been out of the hospital for nine years. So some of these things may have changed, but they were in effect when I last left. And I know for a fact that some hospitals still do that. I'm not usually there like you guys might be as midwives or doulas. Um, once I get a patient transferred to the hospital and settled in, I usually don't stick around. I'm, I don't make a very good doula. So I, just, I, just, I, can't, I, cause I can't sit and do nothing for hours. It's all right. You have your own strengths. <laughs> well, I sit and do nothing at people's houses for hours, but I, I just can't yeah. sit and do nothing, nothing when I'm not responsible for that. So, yeah. I mean, those are, those are the silly policies. And I think, you know, what you're, what I think would help your listeners a lot would be to develop some sort of blueprint blue, If we're still talking about pregnancy as a blueprint for their pregnancy and plan it out early on and not, not so much a birth plan, but a blueprint and say, okay, this is what we're going to do when they want to tell us that we need to do genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And they say, we, we want you to do this, this ultrasound at 11 weeks along with this blood test. And you can say, well, explain to me why I need to do both. And explain to me, well, why can't I do neither? Or why can't I do the blood test first? And only if it's abnormal, do I need the 11-week ultrasound? Ha- you know, think these things through. Have a, have a, have a blueprint. You know, what labs are you drawing on me? Now, that's not a big issue. And you can... And, and again, I wouldn't say you should nitpick every single issue. You've mm-hmm. got to pick and choose which issues are, are of value to you. Mm-hmm. But the diabetes, the diabetes screening, you know, other tests that they want to do, they want, want to, you know, they'll want to offer you vaccines in the second, third trimester. I mean, excuse me, the third trimester. You want to talk to them about why? Give me the data. Mm-hmm. Because I can guarantee you they don't know the data. Yeah. Or they'll just, they just make it up. They just spread off numbers. Yeah. yeah, because, I, you know, the, the data on, on Tdap in the third trimester is very, very weak. Mm-hmm. The numbers are extremely uh, small risks, and you're giving putting something un, unknown, uh, never been tested on a pregnant woman in their body. When the fetus is developing, all its little systems are, are you know, rapidly dividing and developing. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, epigenetics and stuff. And so you, we want to have, you want to have a, a po- you know, it's very important to have a positive attitude to limit anxiety, and it all gets back to having a, you know an idea of what you want with your pregnancy. And if, if two or three visits with one practitioner, you're not getting a good vibe. Trust your you know your spidey sense spidey. or your Peter Tingle, whatever your you want Peter to call tingle. it. Your Peter Tingle, yes, I was just gonna say that. <laughs> right, it's and say, right, listen, man. this isn't good for me, and, and, and look <laughs> elsewhere. Now, some people are not going to have any choices, either yeah. because of they're in a small town or because they're um, they're insurance limits the, the options that they have or they're in an HMO. Mm-hmm. But you, you, can, you can always request somebody else, especially in labor and delivery. If you're having a sort of a friction with the nurse that you have, yep. you have the very, very right to say, listen, I'm not comfortable with this nurse and tell the, your husband to go out and get the charge nurse and have her come in your doula can do it too and go out and, and say, could we switch nurses? No offense, but this is just not working for us. People don't know they can do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But this is not, I mean, again, you're not coming in with, you know, with, uh, you know, a penetrating brain injury here. You're coming in for to have a baby. Yep. And it is it is not, except in rare cases, uh, something where you, you need to, you know, you need to surrender your autonomy for it. it. It is a life event. You know, I mean, Bliss always used to liken it to weddings and all the planning yeah. that goes into weddings. That is and, the and then, best analogy, by the way. Like, yeah, I hang on is. to it and I use it. And don't worry, I do quote you. I don't steal it. But it's amazing. It is. It's amazing. And it's so, it's so true. You know, it really is. So when you say, uh, you just said like a lot of people don't have a lot of choices. And we Mm -hmm. talked about it earlier, like people on Medicaid and, and stuff. And I know like financially, some other options can be daunting or too much. Or, you know, we have people write us on, on our community all the time saying, hey, women, like, we, we call our followers women of strength. So they're like, women of strength, like, I need help. Help me. Like, give me advice. Like, I have no choice. I have two days until my repeat C-section because I have no choice. Or, you know. It breaks their heart. Or, or yeah. <laughs> or, like, my doctor's saying this and there's nothing I can do. And and it does. It, just, it does. It breaks my heart because, you know, I know sometimes out-of-hospital birth is more expensive or 
or maybe or even illegal. illegal. Or, getting, mm-hmm. or, getting, or even getting a second opinion out of network where you actually have to pay mm-hmm. for it. Exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it may turn out that your doctor's recommendation, although maybe given in a, in a sort of abrupt, uh, unpolite way, is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice if a second opinion said the same thing, and then you could go into whatever they're recommending, feeling better about it than feeling like you're getting uh, that you're getting railroaded or have regret afterwards because you weren't sure, or only find out later. You know, if you ever go to an ICANN meeting or anything like that, you you know that these women, so many of them have regrets mm-hmm. um, that they didn't know what they didn't know. Exactly. And so this podcast is a good thing because you know you have listeners, we have listeners. You know, we'll we'll promote it through our network as well. And people will start to get the idea that they, they, are, the, they are the rulers of their body. And, mm-hmm. they, and this is, again, this is not like you're unconscious. It's not like you're, you know, you're third party. Sometimes people are talking with you sitting there and they're not even talking. You can yeah. hear them talking about you, but they're not talking to you. Yeah. Uh, and they don't, you know, I guess people, they, again, they, they get busy. They get, they get, the system, as I get at the very beginning of our conversation, I think the system is set up to propagate this type of behavior in good people. It is. People forget and you get hardened and you're in a hurry and you're tired and you just want to break those bag of waters and go back and lie down in the call room. Mm-hmm. All right. And so you give the, you mm-hmm. give skewed information to get that person to do it. And, and they don't think they're doing anything wrong. But so you as a person have to stand up for it. Well, and I think that a really important thing, at least um, in my doula appointments, I really, and as all doulas do, you know, we really get to know these birthing couples. And one thing that I make sure that I do is tell them, like, you don't want me as your doula telling the staff everything you want and everything you don't want. Because the last thing you want is every single nurse and provider coming into your room prepared to fight with your doula because she's going to tell them what you, you know, how to, how to whatever, you know. But... What I do is I get to know what their preferences are and I educate them on their options with evidence-based resources. And I know Megan does the same thing. And we really talk and get to know what the most important things are to this particular birthing couple. And then if as we notice things that might be headed a certain direction or we know a certain provider is really you know, water breaking happy or whatever, then we can prepare these couples ahead of time. But also in the birth room, we can kind of see what's going on. And then a lot of times what I'll do, I mean, one time in a hospital, I heard a provider come in and whisper to the nurse as this mother was pushing on her hands and knees. He said to the nurse, he was like, oh, we're not going to deliver like that, are we? Like, we're not going to deliver on our hands and knees, are we? And so then I heard that. And so, like, I just casually, like, really, like, nonchalantly walked around to her husband. And I said, listen, if you, you know, whisper, as the the doctor left the room, I whispered to him. I'm like, if you, I know that it's really important to... Desi, that's my friend. I don't. I think I can use her name um, to not birth on her back. And so I want you to know that this provider is going to try and force that. So you guys have to be prepared for that. And um, sure enough, when it comes time to deliver baby, he comes in and tries to get mom on her back. But it turns out we had already had the squat bar in place. And so she was able to give birth, like kind of pulling up on the squat bar. So she was upright and doctor was kind of, you know, as familiar, I guess, on your back as you can be. But they were ready to fight for it because I had noticed that thing. And so I think that as doulas, our job isn't to advocate for you in the birth room, but to educate you of what your options are and to keep an eye out when things might be headed in a way that we know you don't love and kind of give you a heads up so that, like you said in the very beginning, it has to come from the woman. It has to come from her partner. And so we can steer them that way to speak up for themselves when it comes down to it and when push comes to shove. That's one of the things that was really important um, with Megan and I when we created the VBAC link and we created our courses. We spent hundreds of hours writing two 110-page manuals, one for doulas and one for birthing parents. And and the biggest amount of time we spent on these manuals was gathering evidence-based studies, finding out if those studies were credible, which ones were credible, what ACOG says, what the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine says, what the American College of Midwives, is that the right way to say it? I always AMA. say that. American Midwives Association. Yeah. Oh, I always do America's AMA. College. No, no, the American College of Midwives. Midwives, yeah, yeah, or something like that. You know, like yeah. what all these like big name organizations are recommending and what's evidence-based because it's so important 
important to us that every blog we write, every manual that we have, every course that we teach, every person we talk to, we give them things that are backed by evidence and are, are up to date and are current based on what's recommended by these big organizations, but also what's recommended by Bliss, Bliss knows what I'm going to say right here. Yep, All right. Yep, so yep. I'm just going to... What am I going to say, Bliss? Go in. <laughs> I think this is another place that we kind of overlap is like, there are certain times when evidence is, you know, especially in, in this culture, people want to know about evidence-based birth. It can be skewed, you know, yep. it depends on who's doing evidence, all of that. But one of the things I love, Sue, and you don't say it all the time, but it's something you said a long time ago that really stuck with me. It's like, there's also common sense. Yes. Right? And there's not a study that necessarily tells you, like, the statistics of what's going to happen if you walk across the street when it's not green. But we mm-hmm. kind of know, like, that's a dumb thing to do. Right? Yes. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think it's important because that's the direction that we're going in. But I also think... There's not going to be a statistic necessarily that's going to support a woman feeling confident to to Something declare else. that it's her right to have autonomy with her body. But Absolutely. Is, like, common knowledge is if it's not okay for someone to sexually perpetrate your body, it's the same in childbirth. It's the same when you walk into that room. It is your right. And I think we just have to keep, I know I'm kind of repeating myself, but I think that it's really important that we continue to say that this is our body, our right to choose. And, mm-hmm. and it's okay for our voices to be heard. Absolutely. And I think that this is a cultural thing. And it is, you know, Stu pointed to that in the beginning about this patriarchal society that we live in. Women are also people pleasers, the majority mm-hmm. of us. You know, I have women who, you know, are, are like uncomfortable about breaking up with their OB. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. hard. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> you know, that's your choice. But I think that that happens in the hospital, too. I don't want to offend my doctor. I don't want to offend my nurse. You know, it's well, you're very like, vulnerable. You're very vulnerable at that time. You yeah. are. You are. Yeah. And you don't want to complain about your food because you're afraid that they're going to spit in it or something. I think it's mm-hmm. similar to that. Like, right? like it's for if I'm mean to my doctor, <laughs> if I'm rude to my doctor, maybe they're going to treat me even more poorly. Yeah. But I think that we have to keep telling and reminding ourselves that we don't have to ask permission how to have our babies. Right. Well, and that's where I was going with that, too, is giving these women this this evidence information and like, hey, they know what the numbers are. And obviously some things are just common sense, but it gives them the ammo and it builds their confidence where they they can confidently say to their provider, no, I will not have that growth scan. No, you will not give me a vaginal exam. No, I do not want this. Or or maybe, yes, I do want to be induced. We actually just had someone in our community changed providers because they wouldn't induce her and she felt like she needed to be induced at 38 weeks and so she went to a provider that would and it turned out oh, I can't remember the details but there was something a little off with her baby that wasn't able to be caught on a scan or something I don't remember hmm. the details I wish I did it's in our community but anyways well, well too and I, s- I see like the other way as well yeah like it was not like ACOG doesn't suggest that I have my baby at a hospital, right? Like, yeah, ACOG advises against that. <laughs> I'm a mom that's had two C-sections, and it's it wasn't suggested for me. Evidence-based ACOG numbers or whatever didn't suggest that. But, like, I knew that that's where I needed to mm-hmm. be. Like, that's where my, my mama heart said and my intuition. And, and I found the right team, and I made sure I had that good, solid plan way leading up before um, you know, I made sure those questions were answered. I make sure I had a backup plan even if I needed a backup plan. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, kind of what Stu was saying is like prepping way before. And I did a lot of that because I, I, I mean, I felt like I needed to, but I had to. Like that's what I needed to do to have the outcome that I had. And so, yeah, like sometimes, yeah, like finding, getting evidence base and knowing those, but at the same time. And building up your confidence to the point where you, you can stand up for yourself. Because, I mean, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, not every woman like me, I have, I'm, I'm loud and I'm obnoxious and I, and I have a very, and I will, will let my wishes be known. And if anyone's going to stand in my way, they're going to get hurt because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm that, I'm, when I get my focus on that, that's what I'm going to have. And 
And a lot of times that, you know, it's helped me and sometimes that's hurt me, but it is what it is. And I'm not afraid to speak up um, in my defense, but I have a lot of clients who are, and a lot of women out there who are. And some, sometimes something as simple as just listening to our podcasts and hearing other stories gives them that confidence enough to switch providers or tell a provider no or stand up to their husband or their mother-in-law who's telling them, you know, X, Y, Z um, and and really limiting their choices. Do you, before we go, do you guys have any suggestions? You know, like we were talking about here in Utah, like we have it pretty good. Like we really do. There are definitely providers that are not supportive. And we have lots of work to do still, and but we, we're do. One of we, the, we, we have do. it pretty good. We have it pretty good, but like Compared. for those, like like I was saying, in our community, we see it all the time, like I was telling you, like, oh, I have to have a C-section in two days or, oh, this, like, because I don't, they don't have those choices like, what would you guys suggest or what advice would you give if a woman is literally feeling like there is zero choice in the matter of her outcome of how she delivers her baby? Is there like, do you guys have any advice on that? Well, again, you, you don't want to you don't want to paint yourself into a corner like that. Right. And waiting, waiting till there's two days left in your pregnancy is going to be very hard to make a change because, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, you're not going to be able to find anybody who's going to take you on in, in the current system that we have. And you you could just not go in for your C-section and wait for labor to come and whatever, and then and then they either have to take care of you or the doctor on call has to take care of you. But that that's not a good situation to put yourself put yourself in. Excuse me, there's a ambulance. Ambulance, that's okay. Um, put yourself California. into either. <laughs> so you know, again, it, it's 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 preparation. It's feeling like Liz mentioned that she brought up a good point about about common sense. If something doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't right. right. I mean, we all have a good common sense meter inside of us. Not everybody. Some people do walk across <laughs> the street again, you know, on a red light, and but most people don't. But you know, instead of instead of coming to your doctor with articles and saying, "Well, this is what this says," or blah blah blah, which then puts your doctor on the defensive and mm-hmm. and, it, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. If your doctor says something that does that that sort of flutters your common sense meter, you say, "Is there a reference for that? Can you tell me where I can look that up?" You're telling me that that let's go back to the Tdap shot, that I should get a Tdap shot because it protects my baby in the first two months against getting pertussis. So, okay, well, what is the incidence of babies getting pertussis in the first two months, say 10 years ago, before ACOG recommended this as a, as a standard practice? Mm-hmm. All right, was it, ep- was it epidemic? What was the reason that we were getting? And I would I guarantee you they don't know mm-hmm. because I, I had a hard time finding data and there is no specific data on babies that are less than two months of age getting pertussis. The best you can find is what's happening in, in the first year of life. You know, what's called, peri- I think it's perinatal death is the first year of yeah. life. You know, the, the numbers are very, very small. And you don't even know how many of those babies were babies that weren't vaccinated because they, were, they, came, they came to the country late or, mm-hmm. or because they were vaccinated or maybe they died at 11 months from pertussis even though they'd had a vaccine. I mean, you can't tell from the numbers who was vaccinated, who wasn't. So it's a meaningless number, but it's really small. Mm-hmm. So there's all these kinds of things where you could, if, if something doesn't sound right or a doctor wants to do something to you, like he wants to begin non-stress tests on you at 38 weeks because you're 35 years old, <laughs> okay? Could you ask yep. him for some data and show me some, some data mm-hmm. on that, please? Because, I mean, I'm willing to do it if you can show me that it's reasonable, but I, I, it doesn't make sense to me to do that. I'm, I'm very healthy, and placentas don't suddenly have a uh, uh, use-by date Seriously, that goes yeah. south when you turn 35. It just doesn't mm-hmm. happen that way. So, you know, the fact that it's even still a diagnosis is, a, is, a, is an issue. And so bodily autonomy means that you need to stand up for yourself. And, you know, and, and again, I'd like to just drift away from OB for a second. And it goes to GYN, too. You know, some doctors will say, well, we'll see you next year for your pap smear. Mm-hmm. All right. And you could say to them, well, why? Mm-hmm. Why do I need a pap smear? Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of them are going to fumble because it's been routine that women get pap smears every year, but the data doesn't show that. Yeah. The data shows it's almost useless in women who, unless women have had previously abnormal pap smears or carry high risk HPV, you mm-hmm. don't need a pap smear every year, especially if you're in a monogamous relationship or you're over 40, it's almost ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes with annual mammography. The data is very clear that annual mammography is useless as a screening tool. All it does is lead to unnecessary biopsies, anxiety, minor surgeries, and other things, but it doesn't change the overall um, death rate from breast cancer. Yep. Yet you're going to be told 
these sorts of things because that's either it's always been done that way or other times people tell you that you need a pap every year because it gets you back in the office for for a visit. Yep. Yeah, my so midwife actually I, I know, said again, that. I have my sinister side, and one of the things I think that why so many pediatricians are so pro-vaccine without any, I you know, and won't even see clients who don't stick to the vaccine schedule, yep. won't let them even in their practice. One of my things about that, and I know that this is a sort of cynical, but if I have a healthy kid and they don't need vaccines, why would I go to the pediatrician? Exactly. Ever. Exactly. Other than for a school physical that's, you know, a form that you need or a something you you know why would you take your five-year-old to the to the to well the check pediatrician? visit <laughs> the well check to say hey yeah but a well check hey. visit probably serves no purpose nope Mm-mm. tells them how much they weigh and how tall they are and you can do that at home <laughs> and ask or not questions. do that at all <laughs> yeah i mean you, you as a parent can't tell if your kid is thriving or not yeah seriously mm-hmm. yeah you're not capable you know when you so oh sorry go ahead i was, go just, ahead. I was just gonna say with the whole pap smear and all of that like that's all happened to me. Like when I went to my midwife, she was like, why in the heck have you had so many pap smears in your life? <laughs> like she asked me that. And I was like, I don't know. And you just barely turned 32. Yeah. So it's like. And she was even... like, are you kidding? She's like, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> And then when you say that with my kid, like, oh, well, we need to make sure your kid's growing. Like bring them back for another. Just bring them in for a height check. I'm like, so you have such a good point there. It's like, why? I can tell my kid's growing. Like, I'm pretty sure there's nothing going on down there. So well, let me give you, let me give you another extreme example too. When I was training back in the early eighties, it was, it was, it was commonplace when you did an annual pelvic exam to do a rectal exam. Really? Okay. Yeah. So you do a, a, what you two did, one finger in the rectum, one finger in the vagina oh. to feel the rectal vaginal septum. Okay. Mm. And that was the way we were taught. And my senior partner, God rest him, his soul, did it on every single patient, and I don't think he ever told him it was coming. He just that did it. That would be a, all right? a surprise. And, you know, I used to do it, too. I would always tell people that I'm going to, you know, put one finger in here and one finger in here. But then I realized, you know what, the, the, first of all, it's extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know because I get rectal exams. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have a prostate, and I know how uncomfortable that is. But, you know, it's socially uncomfortable. It's physically uncomfortable. And the yield from that is so minutely minute unless a person's presenting with a problem. So on a routine exam to do these sorts of things, especially without permission, but even with permission, is something women ought to know that, you know, you should say, uh, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Or why are you doing that? I'm mm-hmm. 24 years old. Why do I need a rectal exam? Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm not having rectal bleeding. I'm not, I don't have hemorrhoids. I, I'm not having whatever sex you want to call it, but you know, I, I don't, I don't need a rectal exam. And yet, and that hopefully that's fading out and that's dying out and it's not part of the, the routine anymore. But I know that it was routine and I know my partner used to do it without ever telling anybody because I, mm. I saw yeah. him do it. Mm. Right. That's so crazy. You know, right. I, I wish we could just chat with you guys all night long. Unfortunately, we mm. do have to wrap it up, but we will have you back. <laughs> if Again. you would, if you would like, oh, to. he already committed to you. it earlier on in the we episode. Yeah, I said we'll, do a, we'll do a topic on why doctors, I mean, more about the system and why doctors yeah. do what they do. And it's you know, and again, it's not, it's it's a very small, except for a very small percentage of doctors, it's really not their fault. Yeah, mm-hmm. I well, we agree one hundred percent. The way the system is set up. Yep, but and I unfortunately, think the, the system is so huge, it's not going to be changing in the near future. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think the biggest takeaway we can get from this conversation for you, our listeners right now, is you need to find a provider as early on as you can who is most in line with the goals that you want for your birth. And it's sometimes easy to do that and sometimes it's harder to do that. But Megan and I wrote a blog to help you guide you along the way. You can find it on our website, thevbacklink.com slash blog. I'm going to have a link to it right in the show notes for you. It's called Three Things You Need to Find Out About Your VBAC Provider. That's going to tell you um, how to tell if your provider is supportive of VBAC or or just more to- tolerant if everything goes perfectly. Um, you're going to talk. We're going to talk about all different types of providers. You're going to give you some questions to ask your provider to find out if they are supportive of the things that you want for your birth. 
and help you identify maybe some red flags early on so that you have, you know, your common sense, your spidey tingle can go off if, (laughs) (laughs) if, if it needs to. And so that you can find a better, more supportive provider if you need to, to support you in your birth. And so we want to thank Stu and Bliss again for coming and being on our podcast and having a really enjoyable episode and a great conversation. We just love you guys so much. <laughs> Thanks. And you can, you can find us on uh, drstuspodcast.com. And I, th- I hope you'll put the link, you put the links up on your, oh, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. them though, tell them your Instagram, tell them your emails, tell them everything. Yeah. Tell us, tell them where they can Let's find go. you. Let's yeah. You go first. So on social media and birthing bliss midwifery and um, also my website is birthingbliss.com. And that's and, bliss um, with a Y. That's right. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, I love to talk to people from all over the, all over the country. So people have questions or want to reach out. Sue and I really appreciate uh, hearing from you. Yeah. And, and you can, re- you can reach us at askdrstew at gmail.com. That's ask a dr stew. STU at, at gmail.com and on uh, Instagram I'm at I'm just birthing instincts all one word obviously birthing instincts that's right and we'll make right. sure to tag you in today's post as well on Instagram so you guys can go over so like their Instagram pages go subscribe to their podcast it really is awesome it is a great podcast yeah I love listening to you guys yeah well it's good I mean we really want to help begin well not begin but continue the process that great people like uh, Don Thompson, Kristen Pascucci, these other people are doing to try to uh, bring this this sort of information to the to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Don's movie is going to be coming out this fall. I'm, I'm hoping, but maybe maybe it'll be next year. Ooh. It's called Mother May I. It's a Ooh. it's a movie on obstetric violence. So you can you can find it. I think you can find it at Mother May I dot com or mother may i just even google mother may i and i'm writing it and you can down find out right some information now. about it so we follow can put it along. when it comes out you can help support it yes um, it will uh you know hopefully it'll make a splash i'm sure it will and we'll be sharing it i'm looking it up right now okay goodbye so nice to chat with you guys again thank Your you listeners, <laughs> and i are, are, are sent blowing kisses at you goodbye, <laughs> yes, imagine blowing kisses we, we love you all right okay thank you <laughs> bye-bye bye Interested in sharing your VBAC? Head over to thevbaclink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.